Lord, is that cross that we gather around today as we come to the teaching of God's Word. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Uh, Acts chapter 15 will be our text this Lord's Day as we continue uh, to walk through the book of Acts together. Uh, If you've been with us in that walk, you know the ground that we have covered. Uh, Going all the way back to Acts chapter 1, where we have Jesus instructing the disciples that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit then would use them to be witnesses in Jerusalem uh, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we have walked through Acts and seen how the Gospel then saturated Jerusalem and how the Gospel then went out to Judea and Samaria and now how the Gospel is going to the remotest parts of the earth in this day going throughout the Roman Empire. And as it's doing that, as it's moved outside of those Jewish hubs of the culture, uh, you are seeing non-Jewish people, Gentiles, respond in faith and repentance to the gospel. And we talked last week about how that's a a work that we should celebrate. We should celebrate the ministry of the gospel. I challenge you to consider those people who today you might seem the farthest away from God and from the gospel and To consider that the gospel is powerful enough to save them just as it saved you and I. And we should celebrate as God does that saving work. But what we'll find in today's passage is that not everybody was celebrating. There were some that were very concerned about the Gentiles who were coming to faith in Christ because the Gentiles had not observed the Jewish laws and customs. And their concern was, it's, it's one thing for us who are Jewish to kind of become fully Jewish, to, to come into the faith in Christ as a continuation of our faith. It's a whole different thing for these people who are pagans, Gentiles, have not, had nothing to do with God to come to faith in Christ. And they're wrestling with what might be required of these Gentiles in order for them to be truly Christians. And so as we walk through this passage today, I don't know that many of us are struggling with the exact same issues that are being struggled with in Acts. We are struggling in the bigger picture with this issue of works, what it is that truly saves us, what the gospel really is, how it is we respond to the gospel. And so I hope that the gospel will become clearer as we look at this text today. And so because this is the holy, inspired word of God that has full authority in our lives, If you're able to, if you would stand as I read for us, Acts 15, verses 1 through 11. This is what Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to 
consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Father God, help us now, in the name of Jesus, to understand this grace that Peter spoke of and to respond to it just as the Gentiles in his day did. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This weekend, I'm assuming the majority, if not all of us in this room, celebrated uh, the independence of our nation. Uh, July 4th is Independence Day, and, and it is probably assumed by most of us that we don't really need to explain much about Independence Day, that, that, that everyone should learn in history, learn in school what Independence Day is, and yet we find more and more in our culture as we have these marks, these holidays, fewer and fewer people actually know what they're for. I was reminded of this this week as I read two different things. One was basically an interview with a number of people who really couldn't explain exactly why we celebrated the 4th of July. And the other was actually a a former politician uh, who, on social media yesterday, wished our nation a happy 2015th birthday. In case you're not aware, our nation's not 2015 years old. That's proving my point. We probably need to talk about this. Uh, No, uh, the birth of our nation, the the declaration of our independence, actually goes back to July 2nd, 1776. Uh, That's when the Second Continental Congress voted to approve a a a resolution uh, declaring the independence of the then 13 colonies from the rule of Great Britain. It was two days later that they voted on and approved this official document, the Declaration of Our Independence, which would then describe in detail what it was we were declaring. Just one day before that declaration was approved, one of our founding fathers, John Adams, wrote this. And I found it rather intriguing. He said this in a letter to his wife. The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows and games and sports and guns and bells and bonfires and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward and forevermore. Sitting a couple of centuries later reading this statement, I found that Adam, while his prediction was very close, he was off in two places. Uh, One, of course, we celebrate our independence on July 4th, not July 2nd. He assumed it would be on the day that they officially voted on that independence. It was the day they voted on the Declaration of Independence. But the other may have caught your attention. 
that he said it would be a day commemorated as a day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. And we no doubt have lots of pomp and lots of parade and illuminations for 4th of July. Uh, if you were awake or you were woken up, if you weren't awake last night, 9.30, 10 o'clock, 10.30, some places 11 midnight, it just kept going. Fireworks, bombs bursting in the air all over Bloomfield and Nelson County. It's just about everywhere in our nation, people were lighting off fireworks. That, that is not something that we teach people. Hey, make sure you remember those fireworks. You know, they, they just do it. They, they celebrate it. But fewer and fewer, we find, would attribute that day, as Adams wrote, as a day of deliverance, a day that we should celebrate and, and worship of God Almighty. Adams, of course, was talking in his letter there about a day of deliverance being the deliverance of the 13 colonies from British rule. But for us as believers, that that phrase, day of deliverance, should resonate within us. Because as Christians, we celebrate a greater freedom, even than the freedom we have as a nation, we celebrate a greater day of deliverance than what happened on July 2nd and on July 4th, 1776. Because we know what it is to have been delivered from sin and death, and to be freed from it. And so when these holidays come, uh, yes, we should certainly be patriotic, but we should always be mindful as believers of the deeper freedom that we have, what God has truly delivered us from as Christians. And that's exactly what this text does for us. As we look at Acts 15, as we walk through it, and we see the deliverance that's taking place in these people's lives. How God has delivered these Gentiles over from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. Uh, from eternal damnation to eternal life in Christ. And as He's doing that, it should remind us of what it is God has done in our life. But there's also another reminder here. It's the reminder of this struggle that's taking place with in the early church as to what the gospel truly is. You see, they're wrestling here with this issue of circumcision. And while that might not be the specific thing we're wrestling with today, we, we certainly are confused in the church when it comes to works and their part in our salvation. When it comes to what works should look like for the Christian. Do they save us? Do they save us in part? Are they necessary? Are they required? And that's the struggle we see going on here. You may think of it this way. Imagine how foolish it would seem if you and I, every 4th of July, wrote a check to Great Britain and mailed it to them. (laughs) Well, nobody in this room, I would imagine, does that or will do that. Why? Because we are free from that which once ruled us. And yet, as Christians, we write those checks to an old master all the time. We, we, We wrestle with this understanding of what the gospel truly is. And so I hope that as we walk through this passage today, that the truth of the gospel will become clearer and clearer to us in a day and time when it needs to be clearer and clearer to us. Beginning with the first observation I have here from this text, point one, we're reminded as we read through this passage and study it, that doctrine is important in the life of the church. Doctrine is important in the life of the church. If you were with us last Lord's Day, We talked about the end of Acts 14, and in the end of Acts 14, we read about Paul and Barnabas 
appointing elders in the churches. And so as they saw people come to Christ and they were being discipled, they were essentially planning these churches all over the Roman Empire, and then they're going back through to strengthen these churches. And what we talked about last week is they were appointing elders. These men were the shepherds. They were the pastors of the church. Talked about how that, that word pastor really isn't one you see in the Scripture, apart from one verse where it's essentially shepherd or pastor. And so when we think of our church polity today, I talked about how Pastor Nick and Pastor Matt and myself, we are shepherds, we are elders in the church. And there's strong qualifications in the Scripture for who's to hold that office. We read them, and I want to read one of them in part to you today. Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Speaking of the elder, it said this, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And so the pastor, the elder, the shepherd in the church is, is called to have sound doctrine. That, that, that Greek word for doctrine, it means teaching, instruction. It means that I am to teach rightly the word of God. I am to have sound doctrine. Doctrine's important. But not just for me. Not just for Pastor Matt or Pastor Nick. Doctrine is important for every member of this church. Because the scripture says, one of the responsibilities you have in the congregation is to correct false doctrine when it's taught. And so if I stand here today and I teach something that's contrary to God's word, you, as the church, are to rebuke me. You are to confront me. You are to point out that is a false doctrine. And yet we see that rarely happens in churches today. And the reason is because we've lost or we've forgotten the need to focus on doctrine in the life of our church. And we've relegated doctrine to be kind of this academic practice. And that's just something for those, those seminary students. But no, doctrine, teaching, instruction is something we are to pay attention to. And that's what we see taking place in Acts 15. Notice what happens here. These Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. And news is spreading. This is, this is being reported there in the church in Antioch, which has become really the, the, the center of this mission activity and, and Paul and Barnabas being sent out. And now they're back to give a report. People are celebrating that work. But you still have the, this home church back in Jerusalem. And we see here in Acts 15.1, there's, there's men coming down from Judea. And they've got some instruction for these new Gentile believers. And their instruction is this. Well, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, that's problematic. Why? Because they were saved. And we know they're saved. We've read about this in Acts. The report's been given. In fact, there in Acts chapter 10, after Peter shares the gospel of Cornelius and he repents and believes, and then his household does, we read in Acts 10 about this repentance taking place across these Gentiles and how God seals that with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit fills those Gentile believers. They're referred to as believers. And so it's problematic that these men are now showing up and saying, well, you can't be saved. So we might ask the question, well, why would they say that? Well, again, they've grown up from the time they can remember remembering, being taught that the Gentile people were outside the family of God. The Old Testament has clear teachings on those inside the family and outside the family. And the mark of those truly inside the family was this mark of circumcision. And so now they're hearing about these Gentiles 
who are supposedly coming into the family, and yet they don't have the mark. And that concerns them. And they're basically saying, listen, unless you become a Jew first, you cannot become a Christian. That's problematic. Because clearly in the Scripture, they could become Christians. But the problem is, in this debate, in this discussion, they're not able to flip to Galatians or Philippians or Colossians or look through these New Testament books that address these very issues. Why? Because they don't have the full canon of Scripture yet. Those letters haven't been written under the inspiration of the Spirit yet. And so what they're going to have to do is gather together with the apostles, with the elders, these shepherds, these pastors, these churches, and they're going to have to discuss, okay, what what does the Scripture teach us? What what did Jesus teach us when He was with us? What has He handed down to us? And, And what is the Holy Spirit teaching us in this moment? And so they will then form and come together for this first church council to talk about a very important issue of doctrine. What does the Bible teach us? That's how they settled their debate. We have a lot of debates going on in our churches, in our culture today. And sadly, what is often missing in those debates is the Word of God. There is a great concern among, I would say, most if not all of you in this room about the issue of marriage today about what marriage is going to look like in our culture 10, 20, 30 years from now, about what it now legally looks like for us today. And we have a problem in the church today because we're faced with an issue that is clearly outside of God's providence and God's revealed will to us in His Word. But because we haven't looked at the issue of marriage doctrinally in so many of our churches and we haven't dealt with issues of marriage doctrinally before. Now we're wanting to deal with this one issue doctrinally when we've completely ignored so many other issues doctrinally. See, the problem that many people have in the church today with the issue of same-sex marriage is not a doctrinal issue. They don't have a problem with it so much because of what the Bible teaches. Honestly, they have a problem with it because it's outside of their tradition and it's outside of their culture. So many people in the church today are very upset about this issue. But the reason they're upset about it is because that's not how they grew up. That's not how things used to be. That's not what their tradition has taught them. If you ask them to articulate a biblical doctrine of marriage, they're unable to do it, and yet they are enraged by this issue. The problem with that is this. When our convictions are based on our traditions and our customs, We have to realize our traditions and our customs change. And so while it may enrage you, it may not enrage the next generation or the next because the tradition and the culture is radically changing in this area. And so if we don't have a doctrinal conviction to hold to, then this won't even be a debate 20, 30, 40 years from now. And what it means, church, is we have to do the very difficult task today of being doctrinal in our thinking and of realizing the importance of doctrine and of opening up God's Word and saying, Lord, what does Your Word teach us about marriage? And when we do that, we have to be willing as a church to repent of our sin in these areas. Because the Bible doesn't just single out same-sex marriage as outside the scope of biblical marriage. 
The Bible speaks very clearly about issues of premarital intimacy. The Bible speaks very clearly about the complexities and the sin that can be involved in divorce and remarriage. The Bible speaks very clearly of a picture all the way back in Genesis of a perfect marriage that took place between a perfect man and a perfect woman. But how when sin entered the picture, it tainted everything. And this has been a struggle ever since. And then the Bible presents us with a picture all the way forward in the book of Revelation where there will be another perfect marriage between Christ and His bride, the church. And in between those two perfect marriages, we have a mess. It's hard. It's difficult. And so often when we deal with the the difficulties of relationships in our culture today, even in the church, we don't deal with them biblically. We deal with them traditionally. We deal with them culturally. We deal with them emotionally. Well, this makes me feel this way, and God wouldn't want me to feel this way, but if I go over here, I'm going to feel better, and God wants me to feel better. And we completely ignore what the Bible teaches us about marriage. I don't say that to bring condemnation to anybody in this room today. But I say that to bring a warning to all of us in the church today. We can't stand on part of God's Word. We have to stand on the fullness of God's Word. And in our churches today, we can't just say, well, we don't agree with this part of what you're doing. We have to look at our churches And we have to talk about very difficult issues in the church today. And I will tell you, it will be difficult. And I will tell you, many will not. And if you don't believe me, then just look around churches today and see how many of us haven't been talking about biblical marriage in other areas. We've stopped talking, as we should, about issues of premarital intimacy and what God designed intimacy to, be, intimacy to be for. We've stopped talking about issues of divorce and remarriage. Why? Because we don't want to step on anybody's toes. The divorce rate in the church isn't that different than the divorce rate in our culture. And so we've kind of given this silent wink and nod to those issues and not really dealt with them by going, well, wait, what does the Bible say here? And what does repentance look like here? And so now when this issue comes along, we can't just pick and choose which one we're going to think biblically about. And if we're not careful about this, guys, here's where it's going to take us. That the day's going to come. I'm not a prophet, but you don't have to be to see this day coming. That the day's going to come in my lifetime when churches are going to vote pastors out because they won't perform same-sex marriages. And you hear that and you may think, well, that, that surely wouldn't happen here. It will happen here and in other churches if we don't think doctrinally. Because the day is already here when we've got people upset at pastors and asking pastors to leave because they won't perform a marriage for the couple who's living together already. They won't perform a marriage for the couple where one's a believer and one's not. Clear teachings in God's Word. But we've become so numb and so callous to the sin in our culture that's pervaded our churches that we're no longer willing to take a convictional stand. And when people do, it makes us uncomfortable because we haven't taken that stand, so we just ask them to leave instead. And that day will come in this area as well. If we don't get serious about doctrine in the church, and the fundamental one we need to be serious about is what it means to be a Christian to begin with. Point two there in your notes. The doctrine of salvation is foundational in the life of the church. 
Doctrine is important. But if we don't get this one right, we don't have a foundation to stand on. What is it that truly saves? What does it mean to be truly saved? Why is it that the membership of a church then should be those who are truly saved? These are issues we have to process through. And these are certainly issues we see being dealt with in Acts chapter 15. Because as this question comes up, and this council now gathers, the central issue really comes down to how is a person saved? Notice what happens here. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are going on their way to Jerusalem, but as they go, they stop by these other churches, uh, these places where disciples have been made, and notice what they do. They start to give detail to them about the conversion of the Gentiles, and this brings great joy to all the brothers. I find this a bit amusing, how basically Paul and Barnabas or with these others who were saying, well, the Gentiles aren't saved. And they're saying, yes, they are. Well, no, they're not. Yes, they are. Okay, well, we're going to go settle this issue in Jerusalem. But along the way, they're not wavering. <laughs> they're convinced. They know the truth. So they're stopping, not going, well, we want to give a good report to you, kind of, maybe. Uh, the Gentiles might be Christians now. We're not real sure yet. They're just saying, good news. People were lost and now they're found. People were dead and now they're alive. <laughs> People have been converted, they say. Now notice that word. That they're celebrating the conversion of the Gentiles. This is the only place in the New Testament that exact word is used. The root word is used other places, but, but, it, but it stands out. And what it's describing, what that Greek word means literally, is you're walking, you're going one way, and you stop and you turn around, and you go the other way. So what we call repentance. And so what they're celebrating here is actual biblical conversion and repentance. The problem we have in so many churches today, including our own, is that we are celebrating those who are not truly converted. We are celebrating people who in their sin, they're walking in it, and maybe something catches their attention on a Sunday morning, and they kind of turn around. <laughs> but they don't ever really turn around. And they just keep moving in their sin. The, the picture is this. You go all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve, perfect union with God, in that sanctuary He establishes, they sin, and what happens? You've got to get out. And what you read in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament and the New as man in his sin moves farther and farther and farther away from the garden. You see our culture's perspective on marriage, you can't get farther away from the garden than that perspective we have now. But it's not just marriage. In our sin, we move farther and farther and farther away from God. And so what repentance is, is in that pursuit of sin, we stop moving away from God, we turn and respond to the gospel that He has brought to us and invited us into, and now we're moving towards union with the Father. And we're dealing with sin and we're dealing with issues along the way and, and garbage we left behind when we were walking towards that sin. And we got to deal with it and repent of it. But as we do, we are moving into that perfect fellowship with the Father. That's what biblical conversion looks like. But what so often happens in our churches is people are walking in sin, moving in sin. Something happens on a Sunday morning, catches their attention. They might kind of turn around. They might give God a little nod. They might turn around long enough to walk this aisle. Maybe they even make it up into the pool. 
but their life never changes. And the problem we have is we have celebrated it as if it did. And so you look at our church, you look at churches around our nation today, and you look at these two numbers. Attendance, membership. What you normally see is that membership number is four to five times larger than that attendance number. Now I realize there are some fully converted God-fearing, Bible-believing, gospel-centered people who physically cannot be here this morning. But not four times who's here. But what do we do? We just celebrate, oh no, we can't remove from our... Well, then they'll never come back if we remove them from our roles. As if they're coming back. Or as if they should even be on a roll if they're not really converted. That's the issue. And so you go back to that Prophetic statement, pastors getting voted out because they won't perform same-sex marriages. How's that going to happen? It's going to happen because our churches are filled with unregenerate members. And we have churches across our nation today where the people making the decisions and some of the deacons and Sunday school teachers and pastor search committees and stewardship committees and people making core decisions in the life of the church aren't even converted. And they will only be informed by the only thing that can inform them. Their culture and their tradition. And as our culture and tradition moves farther away from the Word of God, that's what's going to happen. And we won't have a leg to stand on unless we stand on the firm foundation of the Gospel. And the firm foundation that says, well, in response to the Gospel, yes, we must truly convert And we must repent. And so you may ask, well, how do you know if a person does? Jesus gave us a simple way to do this. He said, listen, you know a tree by its fruit. I wasn't a botany major in college, and I'm not a farmer, but I know what an apple tree looks like when it's got apples on it. It's an apple tree. How do I know? It's got apples on it. And I know the difference between an apple tree and an orange tree when they got fruit on them. Guess how I know? Apples look different than oranges. Oranges are round, and guess what color they are? Orange. There you go. Apples, not sure what shape you call that. Usually not orange. They look different. Can't tell by how they look. Bite into one. I know the way to tell, and I'll give you the secret. You know how to tell the difference between an onion and an apple? You bite it. They taste really different. Jesus says, you know a tree by its fruit. We're not supposed to judge people, are we? No, the Scripture says, judge not least ye be judged. We are to be fruit inspectors. We are to look in the mirror first at our own sin so that we can see clearly to go out and see the sin in our brother and sister's lives. So here's the point. If a person says to you, oh yeah, I'm a member of such and such church, but there are absolutely no fruit of conversion or repentance in their life, then it doesn't matter what role book their name is in, they are going to hell. And we stand accountable for that when their name's on our role book. Because the scripture says, as the shepherd of this church, the scripture says as members of this church, we're going to give account for that. And for whatever reason, I think we've grown comfortable with thinking, well, if we just don't deal with it, maybe they're okay. Can you imagine walking by 
a house that's burning on fire and knowing the person that's in it and thinking to yourself, but if I, if I pretend I didn't see the fire, then they probably won't get burned. No, what would you do? I hope I, f- I was in that house or somebody you like better than me was in that house. You'd drop everything and you'd go in there and you'd save them. Why? Because you don't want them to die in the flames. For us to have that burden for people who are lost and going to hell. That's what the scripture calls us to. And it comes down to us having a biblical understanding that there actually is a hell and we all deserve to go there. And the only thing that rescues us from that is the gospel of Jesus that's freely offered to us and He redeems us and buys us and makes us His own and we celebrate that. That's what the church is to be. But if we don't start taking these issues seriously in the church today, friends, we're in trouble. And so I'll let you know what we're doing right now. Pastor Matt, Pastor Nick and I, we are going through line by line the bylaws of our church, the church covenant of our church, building use practices of our church, every document we can look at, and we are starting with the fundamental question, what does the Bible say about this? And so the days of, well, maybe this pastor will marry you, but this one won't, are gone. Because we've got to decide, what does the Bible say about marriage? And let's be a church that celebrates that. And if someone's not there, then let's graciously call them to faith and repentance and share the beauty of the gospel with them. It's good news, remember? Not bad news. It's only bad news if you reject it and refuse it. But we have to walk through these things and look at them and go through committees with them and then ultimately come to you, the church, with it to say, what does the Bible say we are to be as a church? Because the day has now come in our nation where we have to have these discussions. And we don't just have them because we're afraid somebody's going to sue us if we don't. We have them because it's time for us to learn what does the Bible teach us about these things. Because we can't just rely on what tradition and culture have because, again, those things change. And so I think today is a good day in the life of the church because it's finally come where we've got to look at the gospel and we've got to decide are we willing to lose everything for the gospel. The days of joining your local Baptist church so that your business will flourish are diminishing and are gone. The the, the days of being culturally a Christian and just acting like a Christian, those days are quickly diminishing and gone. The day is now here when it's time for us to believe are we people of conviction or not. And if we are to stand on that and if we're not, people are fleeing in the droves. And you have to decide which one will you be. Will you repent and respond? Or will you get as far away from the garden as you can get? And there are plenty of people doing that. Point three. How should this affect us? Sound doctrine then should motivate us to witness to our neighbors and to the nations. Doctrine isn't just something that we think about so that we can huddle up in a book or in a corner and just process it on our own. Doctrine is something that should motivate us to action And so really thinking about what the Bible says about marriage, about the gospel, about salvation, these things should motivate us to go out and share this with others. That's what it does here in Acts 15 as they go and have this council in Jerusalem and they're debating this issue of the law and and how this affects Gentiles and can a person come to faith and be a Christian and not be a Jew first? And then I love Peter here. Peter just stands up and says, brothers, let me remind you of something. 
Remember, we gathered not long ago to talk about this. You remember that? Peter comes back to the church. He's just excited. Gentiles have come to faith in Christ. Same discussions going on. Well, can a Gentile come to faith? Well, shouldn't a Gentile have to do this? And Peter does what? He just says, let me tell you the gospel they responded to, and everybody's quiet. He reminds them of the beauty of the gospel that can save anyone. And as he does that, he makes a very clear point to them and saying, why would we want to put the yoke on these new brothers and sisters in Christ that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? See, what Peter's reminding them of is that there was nobody in the Jewish community who went to bed at night saying to themselves, well, I perfected the law today. Well, I got all that right. I mean, have you ever sat down, maybe in an attempt to read the Bible in a year, and you start getting into the law, and you're just like, "Woo! I am thankful that I don't have to do that. When you read the law, you don't walk away from it going, yeah, that'd be easy. You walk away from it going, man, what a burden. So then Jesus comes along, and what does he do with the law? Well, the law has taught you Not to have adultery. But I say to you, if you have thought about a person in your mind in this way, you have committed adultery. Jesus takes the law and says, let me multiply that by a thousand for you. Still think you can fulfill that? See, the law was never intended to save anyone. The law was placed there that we might know what wretched sinners we are. That would then point us towards one who perfectly was able to obey the law and fulfill the law. One who would go to the cross and die for our sins. The law is there to point us to Jesus. And here Peter is basically making the point, why would we put this yoke on them that we couldn't fulfill, that our fathers couldn't fulfill? And then he makes this great statement that I want to leave us with today. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The gospel that saved you and the gospel that saved me is the same gospel that can indeed save anyone on this planet today. No matter what their view of anything is, it is powerful enough to save. But we also need to be mindful that it is very easy for us in the church to have responded to everything but the gospel. (laughs) And to have learned the tradition of the church and the culture of the church. Maybe some of you learned Christianese. You learned how to talk like the folks at the church. Learned how to dress like the folks at the church. You learned how to behave like the people at the church. But you've never experienced conversion to Christ. And you know you haven't. Be reminded of Peter's words. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. God's grace is sufficient to save you today. God's grace is sufficient to save anyone today. God's grace is sufficient to take that which seems so desperately broken and corrupted and redeem it and use it for the glory of Christ. And so we need to preach to our neighbor and to the nations about the grace that God offers. And my fear for us in our culture today is that Christians have got really good at yelling at people and not so good at witnessing to people. There's a time you need to yell. 
You drive by my house and it's on fire, scream. But there's a time the scripture says when we need to speak the truth in love. We don't neglect the truth. We speak it. But we do it with grace and we do it with love. There is a generation of people today who think that a Supreme Court decision is going to bring them happiness and fulfillment. They will find what many of you have found. What the scripture teaches. That sin is pleasurable for a season. But at the end they will come to the same place that sin leads every one of us. Loneliness. Confusion. Depression. Despair. Lostness. And we need to be the people there graciously speaking the truth in love. Calling them to the grace that Christ has called us to Him through. Don't lose that voice. Don't lose that voice. If you would, pray with me, church. Father God, I pray that You would help us to be a, a voice of truth in a culture that seems to be radically moving away from truth. To be a light in a culture that seems consumed by the darkness. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray, Lord, that You would strengthen us and that You would clearly show us what it looks like to walk with You no matter what the cost. And Lord, for those who are willing to do that, that You would help us to lock arms together as the culture becomes more and more hostile towards the faith that we carry. Lord, there will be many people who in the coming days, weeks, months, years, they will flee the church as it takes a radical stand against the culture and stands on the gospel. Lord, help us to be people who don't flee, but people who stand on Your truth. Lord, help us to be people who share the gospel with our neighbor, even if that neighbor is living a radically different lifestyle and seems to be so radically opposed to the gospel. Lord, that person might just be in the process of searching for something that no one's ever sat down and told them about. Lord, help us to be those people who call them to faith and repentance and help us to be a people who are faithful and who repent. And Lord, help us to be a people who think biblically and doctrinally about all areas and matters of life. Help us to be a people willing to repent and turn from sin when your scripture clearly points out to us that we are in sin. Help us to deny ourselves and follow Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.